0: Excel Pro. I would say over the span of 15 years or so, I've never come across a patent that I've litigated that has to do with nuclear engineering. And I think that's the case for a lot of my colleagues where they'll have a PhD, they'll have studied in a very specific area of whatever types of engineering, but that doesn't mean they're going to come across and they're going to litigate a patent that falls within their sweet spot. Welcome to Excel Pro IP Law,
1: where we provide interviews and products to accelerate your professional development. I'm Neil Ungerleither. Today we're going to talk about patent law, litigation, hardware, and biotech with Joyce McDavid. Our guest is a partner at Desmaris LLP with extensive patent litigation experience. We talk about patent litigation, views of technology and biotech, the interpretation of litigation, and more. Excel Pro's interviews and products help to improve your day-to-day job performance and accelerate professional development. For a transcript of this episode and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O dot com. And now, join us, McDavid. Join us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself What you do and what the biggest things you
0: deal with on the job are. Yeah, I have litigated technology driven disputes now for 15 years. And most of the area in which I practice is in the area of patent law. So it usually comes up where if there is a company who either has a patent or is accused of infringing a patent and they get into some sort of dispute over that, it goes to district court normally. And what our firm does and what I think we're particularly good at is presenting these types of cases in front of juries. Ultimately, most of these disputes, as opposed to other types of civil litigation, I think patent litigation tends to go to jury trials more often than others. So that's what I do today and what I've done in my career. The way that litigators get into this business is, I think, different from what you see from a lot of other types of students who come through the ranks and go to law school and join large law firms. I think patent litigators and people who specialize in intellectual property are, I wouldn't say unique, because I think every area of civil litigation has probably got its own unique standpoints from one way or the other. But I think our area of the law tends to get people who have different types of backgrounds, I should say, maybe that's the best way of describing it. Like I said, everyone that I've practiced with has their own unique story. This is a second career for me. I was in the United States Navy as a submariner, and I was in for about seven years before I went to law school. So after I graduated college, I went right into the Navy. I went through training and then was on a submarine for a little over three years. And then I worked on a short command with the Navy SEALs for a while. And then I went to law school. And then from law school, I went to, to start practicing doing what I do now, starting from basically a trainee and associate at a large law firm, and then to where I am today.
1: And we're going to get back to that transition from military service to law school later. But for right now, I was curious if you could tell us a little bit more about the two strains of thought that runs through the background of patent law disputes yes. and from your point of view, how that works.
0: Right. So one of the things that we do as litigators is we steal from each other. So I'm liberally stealing from colleagues of mine when we talk about these issues. So I don't want to give anyone the misimpression that these are all original thoughts. We plagiarize liberally when it comes to sharing ideas about how to try cases and about patent law. But I do think a good analogy is that there are essentially two different strains of thought, like you said, that go through patent law. One is concentrating on the words that are on a United States patent. So a United States patent is issued by a government agency called the Patent Office. A patent, you know, usually there are three parts. There's a series of pictures. There's a written description, which is supposed to elucidate what those pictures show. And then there's the property, which are called the claims, which are numbered paragraphs at the end of the patent. And that's actually what you're protecting, what is enforceable, What is the piece of property that you own, very much like when you have a deed to your property at your home is defined by a red stake at some latitude and latitude. There's a bush somewhere. There's an old stone stove in your backyard. And the remnants of that foundation is the other defining point on your lot. And that's how when you go to court and you're trying to decide if someone's trespassing on your land, that's actually what you do. You bring your deed and you say, I have a lot that's defined by certain stake in a certain place and you happen to be there and therefore you're trespassing. So if I want to collect some kind of money damages for the amount of trespass that has occurred or the length of time, that's how it's judged when you go to court. And that very similar. That's what you do with patent claims. You have a claim, it has words, and you try to prove that whatever is happening, whether it's a product that's being made, does what your words say, right? It fits within the confines of your claim. And then you're compensated based on the amount of damage that has been done to your property based on your trespass. So it's the same concept. That's a very formal, legalistic way of thinking about patents. I mean, if anyone is so insane as to want to go read a bunch of patent decisions put out in courts, that's what they're going to be talking about. They're going to be looking at the words on the page, and they're going to get very technical, and they're going to say, this is what this product does. This is what this claim says. These are what the words mean. And they're going to try to do the same analysis that you would do as if you had a piece of real property. So if you think about property in the law, a patent is just a deed, just like you would have for your property that you own. But there's another good analogy if you think about what your home is and what an invention is. So ultimately, a patent, your claims are supposed to be surrounding an invention. And the invention that you come up with is supposed to be some kind of improvement over what has come before. It is what is written down on the page, but it's something that can't be necessarily reduced to writing. And if you think about it is if you're trying to define what your home is, is it just the property that you own? And it's something more than that, it's something less than that. So it could be your hometown, There's you have a connection to it, or your home county or your home state, but there's a certain connection to it. But then again, it's not necessarily limited to the property that you own because it has to do with the people that live there, the pictures and videos that you've taken over time, the things that you care about because you collected, you know, your stamp collection that you have in your basement. Those are things that make up your home. And that is something that's different than just the deed that you own. If you get to a high enough level of abstraction, especially when you look at Supreme Court decisions, or if you just think about how we as litigators want to talk to a jury, that emotion and that connection has to come through where you're protecting not just the words on a page and a deed and a property. It, there's something about it that is emotional, that is a connection between you and an invention that is better expressed as like your home versus just protecting a piece of property. So I think that If you look at decisions that are at a very high level of abstraction, and especially has come out by courts that deal with things other than patent law, which in most cases are the trial court settings, which don't often get into it. And then very rarely does the Supreme Court take patent law cases. But when it does, that's the way I think normal people think about patents. They think about Well, you're protecting an invention. You're protecting your home. There's some something that is beyond just the four corners of whatever the claims say. So those are the two basic, I think, strains that run through patent law. The way you define whether someone infringes or not or whether a patent is valid or not is focused on the words on the page. It's focused on the deed. But then when you're trying to convince someone there's a reason why this is something that's worth protecting and you're trying to talk to a regular person about it or you're trying to talk to a court and you're trying to get them to understand why this is worth protecting, I think a lot of the decisions are infused with the idea that the invention is something more. You're protecting a home, not just the words on a page. Does that make sense? Does that analogy make sense? It definitely does. That's a good analogy.
1: So, going further, is there a way to reconcile the way that patent holders and litigators view patents versus the way that juries, regulators, and policymakers view patents?
0: When litigators get involved in a patent case, a lot of times what we're looking for is a story, and we're looking to build a story. So, it's sometimes talking to an engineer and trying to get them to understand that it's not just the words on the page and the invention, it is that there is a story behind it. And I want to convey that emotion because when I try to convince a jury why I should care about your invention or your product, I need to have that. And that's essential. And I think people who are engineers are often trained in a way and come up in a way that they're far too humble So they're not used to saying that this is great. They just say, anybody would do this. I'm not all that special. Everything that I've done is just natural. That doesn't help tell a story, especially if you're trying to say, well, you got a patent on this. Why is this important? You have to be able to express why this is something new and inventive and is actually progressing the arts. And in that comes that sort of emotional story as to why that invention means something. And at the same time, you could have an inventor who sometimes thinks that they are, or an engineer who thinks that what they've done is really special, but you can't articulate that in a way that's going to motivate someone to understand why this is so important. Sometimes they'll just say, well, here's the patent. Here's the dinner that I just served you. It's right there. It's all great. But I've got to be able to convince someone that this really is special. So tell me why. Tell me why it matters, you know, because I don't see the fact that you've manufactured the semiconductor in a certain way makes a difference to regular juror or regular judge, right? So tell me how that makes a difference. Does it make your iPhone faster? Does it take less time to charge it? How does this invention translate to something that's going to affect your life in the real world? What we specialize in and what I think makes our area of the law unique is trying to unearth those types of discussions and try to get people to sometimes express themselves in ways that they weren't expecting.
1: Thanks, Jonas. Now, remember you mentioned earlier how patent litigators usually have different backgrounds than most other big law lawyers.
0: Can you explain
1: why having a scientific background can be helpful?
0: Well... I think having a scientific background in, say, 50 years ago, there was sort of a guild mentality that went along with this area of the law because, quite frankly, he was trying to protect this area of the law from others who said they could do it. And that has kept the number of people who practice in the areas of patent litigation small because in order to demonstrate that you can play on this field, so to speak, you need to have a scientific background. And lawyers, by training, tend to come from fields that do not tend to draw from people who have scientific backgrounds because those people, quite frankly, who have dreams of being an engineer or a doctor or a scientist somewhere do not dream of being lawyers. So there's a sort of a natural selection that goes on with that. That has changed over time, especially because the money that's involved in patent litigation has proven to be quite large and remunerative to many, there are more people that want to play in that space. And I think there are more people that know about our space. But I think still, there is a natural inclination to keep and protect the field as enforced by the patent office rules to keep it closed to people who have scientific backgrounds. I don't know that it's essential. I mean, I personally do through training through the Navy, but not academically. Because when I went to school, my major was called government, which is a fancy way of saying political science, which is a very typical lawyer type major, but not a typical patent lawyer type major. It gives people the confidence to engage in technical subject matter, that when you have a scientific background, you've been challenged with something. Not that it's going to be right in your sweet spot, but you're going to have at least the ability to know where it is that you need more help what kinds of books to look at, how to talk to engineers and learn to meet them halfway and speak their language halfway. And I think it's great training to have sort of an innate confidence in yourself to be able to engage with highly technical subject matter. I've litigated many patents over my career. I would say over the span of 15 years or so, I've never come across a patent that I've litigated that has to do with nuclear engineering, and I think that's the case for a lot of my colleagues where they'll have a PhD, they'll have studied in a very specific area of whatever types of engineering, but that doesn't mean they're going to come across and they're going to litigate a patent that falls within their sweet spot. Sometimes you can get overconfident in thinking more than you do based on that. So. I think it's, it's, cer- it's certainly helpful, but I think it's helpful in different ways that people think.
1: And do you have any advice for listeners who might be going on from military service to legal careers?
0: Yeah, I think the military does a great job in giving you a different kind of confidence, but the same thing that I was just talking about, in that you've learned to manage people and manage yourself, and you've had that experience and you've had challenges. And so law school is a different kind of challenge and then working for another job is a different kind of challenge. If you've served in the military, you have had experience in lots of different ways that people who are your age who are going through law school at the same time as you will not have had. And that is something that is unique about yourself. and. I would lean into that because that is something even in today's day and age, fewer and fewer people have a background of military service. Now that we have an all-volunteer military and there's no like mass drafts or anything like that, that's only going to increase in the future. So it's not so much that you have experience that would translate directly into the law necessarily, but it's experience that you have with life and how to manage people and how to manage yourself that is the type of thing that's invaluable. And again, it gives you the kind of confidence to engage with the technical subject matter that we see in our field that you know, a lot of people just would be intimidated by or just wouldn't know where to start. If you have a military background and you got that experience at a young age, you're going to have a leg up more than other people who are at the same level. And that was Jonas McDavid.
1: Jonas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. For a transcript of this conversation, and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. that's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve our members' day-to-day job performance and make career goals achievable. Thanks again to today's guest. If your colleagues in any sector of the IP law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235 That's 614-64-ACCEL. Excel Pro IP Law is powered by Kaplan. The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Shweta Kulkarni, Caitlin Cole, Jared Goff, Harrison Shapiro, Inesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Aliza Solario, Jessica Stillman, Matt Crossman, and me, Neil Ungerleider. Remember, we excel together. See you next time.